I've got a few questions to ask you this morning. How often will your brother sin and you forgive him? How often will your sister sin and you forgive her? How often will your husband sin and you forgive him? How often will your wife sin and you forgive her? How often will your friend sin and you forgive them? How often will someone at church sin against you and you forgive them? The question Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And today we're going to answer that question biblically, and I hope it will encourage you and will convict you. I have some other questions, though, before we get into the text. Are you forgiven from all your sins? Did someone pay for all your sins on Calvary? What did it cost the Lord Jesus to forgive your sins? How many sins, dear Christian, has God forgiven you? And in light of that, are you a forgiver? Do you freely forgive others? Or do you withhold forgiveness? Use it as leverage. And when you do forgive, do you restore that person into complete fellowship after you do? We all sin and therefore we need forgiveness. And so if you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 18, I'd like to talk about this very, very important subject and how forgiven people in Christ Jesus fully and freely forgive others. Forgiveness is a big deal, and a lack of forgiveness is like spiritual cancer. It kills, it metastasizes, and it's very deadly. I had a friend who lost his wife, a young wife. She was probably 35 years old, and I talked to him about a year later with another couple that was going to get married, and I said, any advice for this young couple? Does that mean my sermon's unbiblical? No. You're coming up? It means the mute switch is on. Oh, the mute is on. Sorry about that. Oh, that's much better. I have some questions this morning for you. Are you a forgiver? (laughs) I always say two things to people that work in the sound room. Number one, thanks for your ministry. Number two, louder. So I think he he has both of those. My friend Evan... uh, lost his wife, and we had a couple that was about to be married in our living room. And I said, Evan, any advice to this young couple who's going to get married? I know you loved your wife until she died. And he said, just be kind to one another. And I'm sure he would agree with me if I added, and just forgive one another. Just forgive one another. The outline this morning is pretty simple. I have a question to look at. I have an answer to look at have a parable to look at, and an epistle to look at, and then a challenge. Super simple. Question, answer, parable, epistle, challenge. Simple enough? Question, answer, parable, epistle, challenge. Before we look at this passage on forgiveness, let me give you a few quotes from Christian leaders to remind you how important this topic is. Refusing to forgive is a horrible sin. Forgiveness reflects the character of God. Unforgiveness is therefore ungodly. Unforgiving spirits is is the number one killer of spiritual life. We can always think of some good reason why in particular cases we need not forgive, but that is always an error. 
Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he or she has someone to forgive. Nothing causes us so nearly to resemble God as the forgiveness of sins. I say to the glory of God, this man wrote, and in utter humility, that whenever I see myself before God and realize even something of what my blessed Lord has done for me, I am ready to forgive anybody, anything. And today we'll see in this passage in Matthew, this book about Jesus the King, Peter comes up and asks the Lord Jesus a question. Let's take a look at it, found in verse 21. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus... Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And of course, you've been taught at this church properly that everything has a context. And when you see the first word in Matthew 18, verse 21, then Peter came up, you want to back up a little bit to get the context because the context informs our understanding. So let's just pick it up in chapter 18, verse 1. Remember, there's an argument about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And then Jesus says in verse 5, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. And then he says there's a woe, a maldiction to the world for temptations to sin, verse 7. And then down in 15, we pick up the direct context. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. You're probably thinking the four stages of church discipline, and you'd be correct. Between him and between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not, listen, take one or two along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to tell to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then, then Peter comes up and asks the question. And certainly Peter's thinking there's, there has to be a limit to this. There's got to be a limit to how many times we forgive or else he wouldn't have asked the question. How many times? What's the limit of forgiveness? Now, the rabbis said you should forgive three times. And they would go to Amos chapter 1. There's a lot about forgiving three times there. And so we're going to one-up the rabbis. The rabbis say three. We're going to double it and add one. We're going to be so magnanimous. We're going to be so much better than the rabbis. One man said, the man who asks such a question does not really know what forgiveness means. The man who asked such a question, how many times do I forgive? Seven times? Doesn't really know much about forgiveness. Almost like forgiveness can be a a, a quantity, that it can be measurable, that it can be something with math. Does forgiveness have a limit? That's the real question. What's the answer that the Lord Jesus gives Jesus said to him, Matthew 18, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, double the rabbis plus one, but 77 times, that is up to 70 times seven. Now, I was really good in math in junior high and in high school. And then I went to college. And then I went to the University of Nebraska. And you think of 
College out there in the sticks would have an easy math program, but I could not figure out calculus and Diffie Qs, and I could not figure out all kinds of algorithms and bar graphs and dividends and differences and coefficients and cosines and every other math thing I looked up online. Factorials. Is, is Jesus talking about forgiveness when it comes to math and quantity, or is this something different? Is it more qualitative? Is it from the heart, or is it from the calculator? I mean, you sin against me once, forgiven, twice forgiven, three times forgiven, up to seven times forgiven. Now the eighth time, okay, I don't have to forgive you anymore. Is that how a Christian acts? The real question is, is mercy measurable? Is grace measurable? Does this sound familiar? Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It is not provoked. It does not keep an account of wrong suffered. It doesn't keep an account of wrong suffered. The question was, how many times do we forgive? The answer, 70 times 7. He didn't mean 490. He just meant you just keep on forgiving. Ever ask yourself the question when you're reading the New Testament? When I hear something about seven or 70 times seven, I wonder if there's a background. I wonder if there's some echo of this in the Old Testament that ties everything together. After all, there is a divine author. If I ask you, where's 70 times seven found in the Bible besides Matthew 18? I wonder where you'd say it would be found. Any place? I'm glad you asked that question because keep your finger in Matthew 18 and let's find out where Jesus got this 70 times 7 nomenclature. It's found in, anybody know? Well, close. That's not the one I'm going to go to today. Genesis chapter 4. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 4. Where in the world would Jesus get this 70 times 7 business and where would Peter have the 7 business? Genesis chapter 4. By the way, I loved it that you read a whole chapter today in Exodus. What a great chapter. What was the salvation of Israel due to? Nothing. You stand over here. God is the Savior. There's a mountain here. There's a mountain here. There's a mountain of army people here. And the sea is there. And God does the saving. Genesis chapter 4. This is so insightful. It'll it'll unlock everything for you. Genesis 4.8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. She'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me away today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. And I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Skip down to verse 17. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. He built a city, named it after the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Verse 19, one of the children, Lamech, took two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other, Zillah. And you've heard it said before, he took wives from A to Z, right? 
Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, listen, congregation, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. If you mess with me, it's not going to be sevenfold. It's going to be the law of the jungle. Unrestrained vengeance. Unrestrained revenge. You're messing with the wrong person when you mess with me, Lamech. I will give you unlimited vengeance. Unlimited retaliation. Unlimited law of the jungle. That's what you get if you mess with me. Now, if you turn back to Matthew chapter 18... Instead of unlimited vengeance, unlimited bitterness, unlimited harshness, unlimited law of the jungle attitude, it's going to be mercy and pity and grace and forgiveness. Seventy times seven. You've heard the verse before in First Peter 4. Be fervent in your love for one another because love covers a sevenfold Multitude of sin? No, multitude of sins. We need to be a forgiving people because we still sin. What does James 3 say? We stumble in what? A few ways? No, many ways. And since we still sin on earth against each other and, of course, ultimately against the Lord, forgiveness is very, very important. The question is, how many times we forgive? The answer is, Jesus said, unlimited Forgiveness. And now we have a parable. The question, the answer, now the parable. And by the way, you don't even really have to preach this. You just read it, and it's convicting. If you ever get asked to preach, by the way, pick Matthew chapter 18, because you can't ruin it. It's a good sermon because it's not about the person. It's about the message. And here it is, the message about forgiveness with the parable to drive home the point. Jesus, the master teacher, the master preacher, he might be the one who you think lived a perfect life, and he did. He might be the one that died on the cross for sins that we committed, and he did. He might be raised from the dead and ascended, and he did. He is coming back, that's true. But don't forget, Jesus was the ultimate preacher. I love to ask people the question, who's your favorite preacher? And they'll say, oh, Lloyd-Jones, and they'll say, Conrad Mbewe, and they'll say Sinclair Ferguson, and I'll say, why does everybody ask, answer with those men versus my favorite preacher is Jesus? I mean, he is the prince of preachers. And when he gives parables, something designed to drive home one main point, we don't have it walk on all fours and everything represents everything else, but he's going to drive home what he just said with a parable, and parables are memorable. Parables have that kind of gotcha moment. Who preaches like this? Who talks like this? Only the Lord Jesus, the greatest preacher who ever lived. He is going to give a parable to illustrate the answer to Peter's question. Question, answer, and now here is the parable. And by the way, you might see yourself in the parable if you're an unforgiving person. Therefore, see the tie-in? Therefore, Matthew 18, 23. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. It's reckoning day. It's settling day. And the interesting thing is, verse 23, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
You don't just show up for reckoning day. They bring you. Go get that person. It's time for reckoning day. 10,000 talents. It'd probably take you about 80 years to make a talent, to earn a talent. Talent was 75 pounds of something, and it was a large sum. And the idea here is 10,000, biggest number we have in, in Greek. It's, it's the largest amount of debt you could ever come up with. 8,000 talents to make the temple with gold. This is an uncountable number. Just pick up the, pick the largest number. I, th- I did remember this in class, um, in math class in high school. Ever heard of a Googleplex? Yes. Hence, we get some little company. <laughs> it's named from that. Just pick the largest number. An infant, just whatever it is, just bigger than what you think it is. That's what he owed. Probably didn't want to show up, but he's brought. And of course, it's too much to pay, verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. I guess getting a little bit of something is better than nothing for the debt that's owed. Now, if you're thinking rightly, if you're thinking biblically, if you're thinking as a Christian, if you're thinking the tie-in to earlier with how many times to forgive... 70 times 7, you see what's happening here. You should be saying to yourself, I too, like that man who had an unpayable debt, have to show up for reckoning day. And of course, one sin against the Lord would deserve hell, right? Because it's not even the sin, it's the one that you sin against. I mean, how many times do you have to spit in the master's face before he puts you in the dungeon? And so how many times have we sinned against the Lord? Remember, we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, and we fall short. And so you start saying to yourself, how could I ever pay my debt of sin against God? It would probably take an eternity of hell to pay for that, and you would be right. This uncalculable, unpayable debt is a direct representation of our debt to God. Except we're bankrupt. How could we pay? Well, what happens? Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him over and over and over. The original languages, he kept saying over and over, have patience with me. Have patience with me. Have patience with me. I mean, my wife and kids are going to go to jail, and I will pay you everything with reverence, with earnestness. Punishment is coming. And he falls down and says, please. He doesn't even give an excuse. He cast himself on the mercy of this person. Do you see it? He cast himself on the mercy of the person. Martin Luther said, before the king drew him to account, he had no conscience, does not feel the debt. And would have not gone and would have gone right along, made more debt, cared nothing about it. But now the king reckons with him, he begins to feel the debt. So it is with us. The greater part does not concern itself about sin, goes on securely, fears not the wrath of God. Such people cannot come to the forgiveness of sin because they do not realize that they have sins until that reckoning day or until the Spirit of God works. Verse 27 of Matthew 18, Jesus still giving the parable, which helps explain the answer to the question, and out of pity, 
the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Do you see any conditions there? Do you see any, you do this first and then I'll do that? Do you see any transactions involved with that? You see nothing but compassion. You see nothing but grace. You see nothing but mercy. You see nothing but pity. You see nothing but him, the the one who is owed everything, releasing the debt. Ten million talents. Ten thousand talents. What's the difference? It's unpayable. The smallest sin against the infinite God, unpayable. Please have patience. He didn't ask that. Please give me time. He didn't ask that. Please, I'll work harder. He didn't say that. Just have pity on me. You see where this is going. What would you expect a man who had such great compassion to do? Somebody that received such forgiveness. What do you think he would do when it comes to other people now? How would he act if someone has hurt him? We'll find out. Verse 28. But when that same servant, the one that had been forgiven, received compassion, mercy, grace, he found one of his fellow servants. That means he went out looking. He released the hound dogs to go find the person who owed him three months' wages, 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. A debt that they couldn't, he couldn't pay. Released, forgiven, free. Goes out now and finds someone that owes him one six hundred thousandth of what he's been forgiven. And he starts to choke the person. By the way, you would take people into court back in those days often by grabbing them around the neck and bringing them in. He went and tried to finally find that person. I think of words like cruelty. I think of words like satanic. I think of words like ungodly, harsh. Takes him by the throat with a twisted neck for the judgment seat. Throttling this person. You pay. Emphatically in the Greek, pay what you owe, pay what you owe, pay what you owe. Sometimes they would grab their necks when they take them to court, and they'd, for good measure, push down on their nose to make sure their nose bleeds. I mean, this is really, this is, it's not weird, this is gross. This is preposterous. This is nightmarish. Verse 29, I wonder if this will remind this ogre of a forgiven man of anything, so his fellow servant fell down. Remind you of anything? Did it remind him of anything? And pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Maybe that would jar the person's memory. I just did that and I was forgiven. And now I brought you in. I'm choking you. And now you ask me. Verse 30, he refused. It's an ongoing Tense in the Greek, he refused, he kept refusing, he refused, the guy kept asking for patience, I refuse, no, 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 I will not forgive you. Not, I cannot forgive you. By the way, just to think a little bit later in the sermon, if you say, I can't forgive someone, would you please just change that to, I won't forgive them? Because you can forgive. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
I'm just not going to do that. You receive forgiveness and you don't grant forgiveness. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, when we see what's taken place, they were greatly distressed. This is wrong. This should not happen. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. His master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You receive mercy. You receive grace. You receive compassion. You receive forgiveness. A forgiven person, what? Forgives. All that debt. And now you're acting like a villain, like a scoundrel. This is the answer to Peter's question. This is the answer to Peter's question. Right there in verse 33. Compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on you. And of course, dear Christian, you already know this. You have been forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. Every one of those has been nailed to the cross. And you look at Romans chapter 5, and we were helpless. Jesus wasn't helpless, and he came to rescue us. We were ungodly. Jesus wasn't ungodly. He was God incarnate, and he came to die not for his sins, but for our sins proven by the resurrection. Jesus came to what? Seek and to save those that were lost. Jesus came, what? Thankfully, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many he came to rescue us and to save us and to forgive us all of our sins. Free to us, but a cost to the Lord Jesus. Verse 34, in his anger, and in anger rather, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. The ESV says jailers, it's really tormentors, it's torturers. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. If you don't forgive, you should ask yourself the question, am I really forgiven? Am I forgiven if I can't forgive other people? Free forgiveness experienced by grace and grace alone should transfer into my life at least a desire, even if I don't do it perfectly, the desire to say, I should forgive people. What people have done to me, what people have done to you, is far smaller of a debt, three months worth of debt, versus the infinite amount of debt we've committed against the Lord. I love reading Jerry Bridges. He's easy to read with great theology. That kind of works together, doesn't it? Easy to read people are no good if they have bad theology. People that are hard to read... With good theology, make it difficult. But if you have both, Jerry Bridges, to preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood. It means that you appropriate by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that he is your propitiation, and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed toward you. You can be sure of one thing, though. When you set yourself to seriously pursue holiness, you will begin to realize what an awful sinner you still are. 
Peter runs up to Jesus. How many times do I forgive? Seven? I'm generous? Jesus said an unlimited amount. Then he gives the parable to drive that home. Now, if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and let's look at an epistle that also helps us with this theologically. Forgiven people forgive. If you're a Christian today, there's a debt so great that the Lord paid for you. I used to put my children to bed when they were little, and I would do the same thing every single night. I would kind of rub their, their chest and their stomach, and I would just sing a little song, and I would sing the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. You know that song? Jesus paid it all, all. See? It's a singing church, isn't it? Christians sing. I love that. He paid it all. And so if Jesus paid it all, past, present, and future, we're in Christ Jesus. When God looks at you, dear Christian, he sees Jesus. I said at the congregation last week, we were going through the, the baptism of Jesus when Jesus was baptized. The Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Right? Spirit of God descends. The Spirit of God says, that's Jesus, the God-man. The Father says, that's Jesus, the God-man. And I remember once we had, uh, I watched a baptism online, and a a man got baptized, a young man, and the, the, the young man's father was sitting in the congregation. And he yelled out when the young man got dunked and pulled up. He yelled out, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You're kinder than I am. I, don't, I didn't say, ah. I said, that sure was dumb. <laughs> That's the father talking to the son. But then the more I thought about it, guess what union with Christ means? We're in Christ. John chapter 17, God could not love you more, Christian, and he could not love you less because he loves you as much as he loves his son, the Lord Jesus, and you're in the son. And it is true of you. It is true of you that if you're a believer in Christ Jesus by faith alone, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased, not because of your merits, not because of mine, but because of the Lord Jesus and union with Christ. Ephesians talks about union with Christ in the first three chapters, in him, in him, in him. And in light of who we are, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Out of gratitude, how do we live? You see it right there in chapter 4, verse 32. You know the passage. It's convicting. It's instructive. It's Christ-centered. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I've said it earlier, but I'll say it again. Dear Christian, every one of your sins has been paid for. Every iniquity paid for. Every perversion paid for. Every trespass paid for. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for all those. And he said at Calvary, what? It is finished. You know what that means, by the way? It is finished. Paid in full. The Greek is it's paid in full. Every one of your sins paid in full. And the way we're forgiven, graciously, without merit, without groveling, we're to forgive other people, as Christ in God has forgiven. Sometimes people, I think, imagine that God is a reluctant forgiver. Did you know God is an earnest forgiver? 
Maybe some of the verses you like in the Bible more than any others. Listen to this. Micah 7, he will have compassion on us again. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of their sins into the depths of the sea. I don't know if you've ever been on a boat. Now, Kim and I went kayaking a little while ago. My biggest concern on the kayaks was not to drop my iPhone, that sacred little box that cost about $1,000. Don't drop the iPhone in the water. The text in Micah doesn't say he dropped their sins. He kind of flicked their sins. He kind of just, you know, barely put the sin. It says he cast them. This is the language of intensity, of willingness. God is not a reluctant giver. Why would he be? Why should he be if Jesus has paid for our sins? That's why it's free through grace alone, through faith alone. Colossians says, when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses, ignorant sins, high-handed sins, sins of omission, sins of commission. They're all forgiven. And now he says here in Ephesians, so instead of being verse 31, do you see what just above verse 32, a little bitterness? That's my struggle. Somebody does something against me and I want to be bitter and wrath. And anger and clamor and slander be put away from you um, along with all malice. He says, just get rid of it. That's the language of Jesus the King, away with him, away with him, away with him. When it comes to this kind of bitterness and people hurting for real, hurting with imaginary things, just don't be a bitter person. Forgive. And one of the things you can work through in your mind is, am I a bitter person? Here's what bitterness does, among other things. It remembers. It replays. I remember what you said when you were there by the kitchen with that dress on and you were drinking that orange juice and it was 3.30 in the afternoon and it was rainy outside and all that. I don't even know what I had for breakfast yesterday. Wait a second. I, I don't. Okay, eggs. How could I remember all that? Because bitterness replays it over and over and over and over again. Because when someone says, will you forgive me? And you say, I forgive you. You're not to remember it. You're not to bring it up. You're not to hash it over. Bitterness remembers. Forgiveness forgets. Doesn't bring it up. And so Ephesians 4 says, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. With tender hearts. By the way, Ephesians 4.32 has an interesting word for forgiveness. It means grace. As God has graced you, dear Christian, you grace other people. There's lots of words for forgiveness. This one is grace. It's where we get the word charis, grace. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously, freely, that's the word here, give us all things? Your forgiveness and mine should be modeled after Christ's love. When the person doesn't deserve it, whatever the person has done, regardless how many times they do it, Jesus said, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your heavenly Father also who is in heaven may forgive your transgressions. When Christians don't forgive, they're chastened. Christians forgive. They want to forgive. They try to forgive. How does God forgive? Liberally, comprehensively, at a cost. Did you notice here when the Bible commands something like this? This is not a feeling. 
Forgiveness isn't a feeling. I don't feel like forgiving. I never thought you would. I never feel like it either. But it's an action. It's something that you do. Remember Proverbs. Here's what we think. Then we do it. Then we feel. Here's the the engine. Here's the caboose. Think, do, feel. What's the world say? If it feels good, do it. And then you think about it after. We don't operate on feelings. We must not operate on feelings. Sometimes if I think to myself, you know, I can't control my temper. I, can't, I, can't, I just can't control what I say. Ring, ring, ring. Hi, how are you? Mike Capenroth speaking. Of course I can control what I say and do. Forgiveness is a duty. Forgiveness is a command. Don't ever say, I cannot forgive. What you mean is, I will not forgive. Is it hard? Yes. That's why we can ask God for grace. Lord, help me to forgive. I personally don't want to be duped by Satan because Satan dupes people in many ways, including don't be a forgiver. 2 Corinthians 2, but whom you forgive anything, I also forgive, Paul said, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. What's the scheme? Don't forgive other people. The marriages at Bethlehem Bible Church that are really, really struggling have a common theme, and that common theme is unforgiveness. What if I'm really struggling forgiving someone? Good question. Romans 7 is true. We struggle, and the struggle is good. It shows that you're a believer, that you want to honor the Lord. What if I can forgive, but I can't forget? Well, God still remembers our sins, but he doesn't remember them. He doesn't recall them. He doesn't bring them up. Yes, but Pastor Mike, easy for you to say, you don't know what so-and-so did to me. You're right. But the Lord knows, and he still commands you to forgive. But the Lord knows, and he still commands you to forgive. Jesus said in Luke 17, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. It's hard, true, but it's right. I read of an account of a couple in the Philippines. They'd been married for 30 years. The last 12 years of their marriage, before they got divorced, they didn't talk to each other. They set it up so that one would come to the house, the other would leave. And when they did communicate with each other, they did it with notes. The last 12 years, they didn't speak to each other. And through the lawyers, they figured out that neither one of them could remember what first started the fight. So, dear congregation, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you have a debt to pay that you can't pay. Eternity in hell won't be enough, but that's right where you're going. And so if you've heard about a Savior today that freely forgives sins, I offer you free forgiveness found in Christ Jesus by simply believing No baptism, no being good, no forsaking your sins. Free forgiveness found. Come and drink without price, the Bible says. And if you're a Christian today, you're a forgiven person, aren't you?
Just how many sins have you been forgiven for? An unpayable amount? The answer is yes. And so you should be a forgiving person, right? You should be a forgiving person. There could be problems here at church. There could be problems in your family. There could be problems in a marriage. There could be problems with people at work, this, that, or the other. It'd be good to go home and think about the Savior and what he did for you at Calvary and say, Lord, would you grant me forgiveness? My grandparents, I love, they took care of me, raised me and during the day while my parents were working, but they were bitter people. They didn't have any friends because they counted everything against them and could never forgive. And then I met Kim, my wife's grandmother who raised her. Her name was Evie. And Evie got taken advantage of a lot in ministry because she was just so kind and forgiving. And I remember Evie having all these friends at the end of her life, and I just thought, friends in her life, no friends in their life, bitter, angry, resentful, hating everybody and being hated, and someone who said, by the grace of God, I'd like to forgive like Jesus forgives. That's not the reason to do it because it works. That's just the ice cream on the top. Where you just think, this is the kind of person I want to be, a forgiving person. So here's the challenge. After a question, an answer, a parable, an epistle, here's the question. Is there somebody in your life that you need to forgive, but you simply won't? Who do you need to forgive? Freely? Mercifully? Compassionately? Graciously? Just like you've been forgiven. And you could say, Lord, I don't know if I could do it, but would you please help me to do it? I think that'd be an honorable prayer to pray, don't you? P.S. Aren't you glad you're forgiven? Aren't you glad you get to go to heaven? Aren't you glad on Judgment Day you don't have to worry because Jesus is not coming back to do anything to you? He's coming back for you. We long for the return of Christ. Judgment Day for the Christian is with smiles and joy because Jesus has paid it all. Amen? I feel like I could just keep preaching. Longest sermon I ever preached was 90 minutes. I'm only at 41. Come on. (laughs) Forgiven people forgive. Don't hold things against your spouse. Don't hold things against your children. Don't hold things against your parents, those here at church. Christians forgive because they're forgiven. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. I stand convicted as well with the congregation. And so, Father, would you help us to repent? Maybe there's no one that needs to grant forgiveness here today, but probably in the future they'll have to. And so prepare them, help them. And would you remind us one more time by your Spirit's remembrance today that how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not account iniquity. Thank you. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. In his name we pray. Amen.